Coming up on this week's show, how to live in 1998 forever. How the SNES almost got a Back to the Future RPG. And we talk making chart hits on the Amiga with DJ Aphrodite. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. And if you're an old school fan of the Game Boy or maybe just discovering this monochrome wonder for the first time, check out Game Boy The Box Art Collection, their incredible new book, which is available right now from bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 259, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's packed show, as we've got so much to get through over the next hour-ish. I'm actually hoping that you guys can't hear the uh, the wheelie bins blowing around outside my window at the moment, as we're getting battered by a storm here in the UK right now, aren't we? Oh, yeah. I, was, I, was, I, I came out and there was a tile that had fallen off my roof the other day, and I was like, oh, God, that's not a good sign. <laughs> so <laughs> it is getting windy. You know what? I've been cooped up at home, working from home, and when I'm off, I'm just looking after my baby. I've, I don't even know when I last left, left, left the house. <laughs> I didn't even know it had been windy. <laughs> well, hopefully uh, none of our ceilings will blow off during the recording this week, so uh, fingers crossed. However, someone who is definitely going to raise the roof no pun intended, is that this week's special guest, as we're going to be joined by, I know you always love the music episodes, especially Ravi, um, when we talk about Amiga music. Now, we've got a legend on the show, particularly if you're a fan of old school jungle and drum and bass. Yeah, um, let's keep with the puns. He's probably going to blow your bass bins. Um, this is <laughs> DJ Aphrodite, and he was part of the um, Urban Shakedown Collective, which were like a hardcore group that that basically went into the charts but dj aphrodite as well he he was a bit of a programmer so this is a really interesting interview we're going to talk about how he was using uh, a pdp back in the days uh north star horizon he was doing some really early programming his dad was a computer professor so he actually got into programming and that got him into university and he was on a course with a guy who created his own computer system his own language, so no one knew <laughs> how to like kind of use this computer system. No one knew about his programming, and he said, you know, there was a lot of really intelligent people on his course, and what happened was he ended up going into music and the kind of rave breakbeat scene, and he said the Amiga was an absolute perfect machine. So we're going to talk about why it was so good, the kind of bass frequencies, how you could get to those low tones, but also how he managed to actually get to chart success with Urban Shakedown and their Amiga tune. Um, it was some justice. Do you remember that tune? Yeah, because I had friends at school who, um, I mean, a lot of us at school had like Amigas and, you know, Mega Drives and we, we, there's like a crew of us who were into video games, but also this kind of the cooler kids who were more into collecting the, um, you know, the rave tape packs. Yeah, and they had, yeah. like, you know, turntables and all that early on. Um, and I remember Ben uh, telling one of the kids at school, who wasn't into computers or anything, and he always kind of took the mickey a bit, like, oh, you guys are geeks. Um, and But he's really into his drum and bass and rave music. And I remember um, Aphrodite actually being on the cover of Amiga Format magazine um, and actually telling this 
kid at school, like, you know, you know that music's all made on, on like, uh, the computer I've got, the Amiga's like, no, it's not, you're lying. He didn't believe it. Flat, I didn't believe it at all. <laughs> you make um, it on a trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 he he did drum and bass and jungle and, yeah. like, the the kind of breakbeat-y stuff. And um, he was actually with uh, another load of producers as well. So Mickey Finn yeah. as well was a big drum and bass one, and he was telling me how, you know... Um, He'd sit there and Mickey Finn would go, oh, can you do this? And he'd kind of be the technical guy doing the bass lines, working with the trackers and all of this and uh, trying to get those samples sounding really cool and really clear. To the point that actually Urban Shakedown did a sample pack for the Amiga. That's how dedicated they were to the machine. Yeah, and I love that because, you know, back in the day, a lot of people used those, um, the standard Pro Tracker. I think they were like Sound Tracker discs, actually, weren't they? And a yeah, lot of mods, ST-01, I like to say. one That was it. <laughs> S-T-O-O. And, uh, and they kept expanding them. So it started as like Sound Tracker 00, and then yeah. it got to Sound Tracker 99. So there were like 99 discs, and the samples got crazier. And they were all stolen, weren't they? They were all <laughs> <laughs> like not legitimate. Yeah, copyright didn't exist back then, I don't think. Uh, but yeah, this is going to be really interesting. If you're a fan of drum and bass and jungle music or just making music on you know, machines like the Amiga and programming, it's going to be a really interesting chat. DJ Aphrodite is coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 20 minutes from now. Now, let's get straight into the stories this week, because we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon, the 20th of January. And actually, today is a pretty good day to be recording a podcast, as it is, amazingly, the 20th birthday of this glorious medium. The first ever podcast was recorded on January the 20th, 2001. That's mental because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, podcasting, it's a new phenomenon. <laughs> I can't even say that. It's a new thing. <laughs> That's yeah. it. And they're like, yeah, oh, this is really innovative. And like, you know, people like the BBC are getting on it with the BBC Sounds app and stuff. But it's been here for 20 years. You know, interestingly, I mean, I was kind of thinking back to when I first started listening to podcasts. I think it was probably around 2005, probably the year. I remember then... I don't know whether Apple just kind of put it into the um, the iTunes app, and maybe that was the first time that it was dead easy just to download them via that. And I was thinking, like, you know, what were the earliest podcasts I listened to? And I remember listening to, obviously, Ricky Gervais' podcast. Everyone mm-hmm. used to listen to that back then before, it, you know, it went behind a paywall. And I think that was kind of the first, you know, podcast that was successfully paid for. I think it what was like a pound or something you used to have to pay, I think, at one stage, and he made a fortune off that. Um, I used to also listen to, I don't know if you've heard of a guy called um, Fevzi Turkalp. He used to call himself the, the Gadget Detective. He used to do like a, an early podcast. And obviously This Week in Tech, I've listened to that for years as well. I mean, do you remember like, I don't know what, it, what it's like for you guys. Do you remember the podcast that kind of got you into the medium? I, I think it was actually the Essential Selection, which was like a BBC um, dance. It was like the big dance show. And then they did like a podcast or they did, I don't even think it was a podcast. It was just like an online version of the dance show. Like years ago, I used to listen to that. And uh, I think there was a few, few other kind of ones, but nothing to the level that I listen to now. Like, you know, I'd say three quarters of the media I consume is podcasts. Yeah. (laughs) To be honest, this is going to sound so bad considering, you know, I've worked on a podcast for the last five years, but I barely even knew what a podcast was until we started this. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> you still don't, Joe. What are you talking about? I, I remember the first. Ever, I'm not. Yeah, I still. I still bloody don't. The first ever episode. Uh, 
I worked on, you know, I was on with you guys. I shared it on my Facebook and I didn't even call it a podcast. I was like, oh, this blog I helped with. And then I had to go back. I was like, it's not a blog, it's a podcast. Like, nothing like a blog or anything. So um, until you kind of mentioned it just before the show, I'd never really given it much thought, like when the first ever podcast would have been. I, I, I literally would have had no idea. I would have assumed it would have been kind of the boom of the internet, like the turn of the century. And obviously mm. it is. So yeah, you know, and I still don't really listen to any other podcasts. Interestingly, my wife listens to loads of podcasts. She puts right. them on in the background all the time. You know, she went through a phase um, when our daughter was first born and, you know, all the way from the start, the first six months of lockdown as well, of literally just podcasts on all the time in the car when she's cleaning and stuff like that. Um, she's never listened to us ever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> don't blame her. <laughs> which, uh, you know, is, is great for me. Um but yeah, no, I don't, I've, I've never given it much thought, to be honest. But there's, like you say, there's loads out there. You guys listening to them for years, by the sounds of things. Well, I think, you know, you, you mentioned that your wife's getting into listening to podcasts recently. Mm. And that's quite interesting that it is kind of becoming, it's become a lot more mainstream in mm. recent years. Mm. And they are my missus who, you know, when I met her and we started, she was the same. She didn't even know what a podcast was. She asked me, what, how do you listen to it? And the other day she figured out how to get um, Harry and Meghan's podcast on the air. Uh, the Amazon oh, Echo God. in the kitchen. So um, <laughs> it, it's really mainstream now, obviously. But I mean, there's an interesting article on um, podnews.net, which is a great website all about podcasting. And they talk about how a lot of people reckon that there was a podcast called Open Source in 2003 that was the first real podcast, because that was the first show that was actually recorded specifically for the platform. Um, but you've mentioned this before. It's actually um, Adam Curry. Ravi, I know you've mentioned him before. He was a former um, VJ on MTV, um, a bit of a rock star himself back in the day, but he was really the guy who came up with the idea of putting podcasts on RSS feeds. Now, RSS, he actually worked with a guy called um, Dave Winner or Dave Weiner. And the idea is with RSS, I'm sure a lot of people know, but it was really um, a feed that could give you up-to-date information. And Adam Curry back in 2001 had the idea, you know, because you think back then, a lot of people were still using dial-up or just kind of cable modems were coming in. But the fact that they were always on meant that even though the speed was slow, you could actually download things on it when you weren't using it. So the idea that he had is, you know, rather than having really low quality audio streams, uh, you know, I remember trying to listen to internet radio. Oh, in like yeah. two, God. A real audio internet radio. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. well, I, 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 well, I used to do an internet radio show in, God, 1998. Well, they had a thing called Icecast uh, back then, I remember. That was a, a way that you could do internet radio and TV onto Winamp. Yeah. <laughs> but you remember when you tried to do that on your old school connection, that's all you could do. If you loaded a web page while you're listening to it, it'd stutter and drop out. So Adam's idea was that, you know, a podcast would use the RSS feed and it would download like overnight while you're not using your computer. Then the audio would be on your hard disk in the morning and you could listen to it. And it's interesting reading this article because uh, Dave, the founder of RSS, he was like, why would anyone want to do that? They didn't really understand, you know, the use case of it. And it took a couple of years until it really caught on. But it's interesting that, you know, like many ideas, people don't really appreciate kind of the potential of them until a good few years later. And I think, like, it's really interesting because other formats, like you've got YouTube, right? And you put something up on YouTube, it gets edited, it gets copyright flagged. Yeah it gets changed by the actual provider. But the RSS feed, like, we, we have inline adverts that appear on it and stuff, but there's no censorship. There's there's no change. So I think that's really helped podcasts thrive. And also, there's a danger as well, because, you know, uh, 
with something with no censorship, you've got to watch what you're saying as well. <laughs> you can still get sued. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a double-edged sword, you know, uh, podcasts. But interesting, I mean, you know, kind of spanning that into online radio, I, I've been really weirdly binge-watching a load of episodes of the Computer Chronicles again on YouTube. I'm kind of working my way through them all. And I think I'm up to around 1993 on there now. Um, and there is, there's a guy called um, Carl Malamud who actually started what they reckon is the first internet talk radio station back in 1993. And the website for it is still up. And you can oh, still wow. go back and listen to, you know, interviews that he did with people like Tim Berners-Lee oh, that he wow. did in October 93. I mean, these are actually in, um, <laughs> it's in AU format, which I think was on the Mac back then. You've got real audio. Oh, there was like OG as well and weird formats, weren't there, for the well, Mac? The file then. sizes are really small. Like, you know, the, <laughs> this internet radio show is 1.8 megabytes, and I think it's like an hour <laughs> and a half long. So, uh, you know, the medium's been there for a long time, and actually you could argue, cause he also made his shows available for download, but the thing about a podcast, it has to be on the, the RSS feed, I think, for it to qualify as a podcast. But, um, yeah, the fact that 20 years after the idea was first planted, I think, you know, the, the fact that it's now one of the biggest mediums in the world... Long may it continue. Here's to another 20 years of podcasting. Definitely. And I think with that RSS technology, you know, it is just going to continue how it is, you know, um, unless someone takes over RSS, but I don't see that happening. (laughs) Don't let Spotify buy it. (laughs) Right. Okay. Let's get into um, some gaming stories now. Now, this is one that I know Joe's going to be really interested in, being a a big fan of Zelda, as you revealed on our, um, our latest episode of the Retro Hour after hours podcast where we talked about our favorite video games of all time uh, but actually an early build of zelda 64 has been discovered on an f-zero x development cartridge yeah this is really interesting and i've got a lot of questions about it which aren't answered unfortunately in the feed um so hopefully we'll get a little bit more information about it over the next coming weeks but yeah this is really cool so um a guy known as, uh, or a team known as Forest of Illusion on Twitter have shared this. Now, they've not, this is my first question, they've not said where it's come from or anything like that. It's mm. just been found, like you say, on an F-Zero X development kit. Um, but yeah, it's assets of Zelda Ocarina of Time, um, you know, which weren't essentially used in the final product. Um, so apparently this, they think this may have been for Space World 97, you know, to show off kind of like demo for a demo. But That was like a big kind of trade show. Yeah, it was a big trade show. uh, I want to say in America, it might have been Japan. I'm pretty sure it was America. But, um, you know, the Space World 97 video of Ocarina of Time is quite famous anyway um, because it had these, you know, nice shiny graphics that we never saw in the end. Um, That's a different story completely. But this this actually looks quite a lot like the final game, what, what, what Ocarina of Time ended up looking like. But essentially um they've they've put it out there people have already actually got it up and running um which is really cool dan you actually sent me the video of it as well Hmm. um we've got about two minutes of footage um of link running around in a kakaroko village i've probably said that wrong but kakaroko village um which is the essentially the second village you go to in the main quest in um ocarina of time it looks nothing like what the final town looks like um which is sorry it's the first village you go to sorry but it looks nothing like the final product like the houses are just like normal houses it's a big open kind of like world if like open map which you didn't see loads of um in ocarina of time um there's quite a bit of misting in it as well you know the draw distance 
Yeah. It looks like um, a Microsoft flight simulator level when you get yeah, down to that, the that, uh, ground. That's <laughs> lit- the textures of it literally look you're just spot on there. I couldn't put my finger on where I'd seen that kind of textures before, but the final product doesn't look like that um, in the end. Interestingly, they spelled attack with a Q um, <laughs> on the button layout as well, um, which I thought was quite funny. But yeah, um, it's interesting to see because this has never been seen before. It also states that there's never seen before images um, on there as well. But it's interesting that they said that because of these are all just images which did actually make it into the final game. Um, so the images are actually in the final game, but one, they're probably been never seen before. They've never seen them in that development state before. Hmm. Uh, but I do think the video is the most interesting thing. Um, there's no sound effects and there's no music on there. It's just the graphics. And that's not just because the guy who's uploaded it onto YouTube has muted it. It's apparently, that's how it was found. There's no no sound effects or anything in there. But it, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm just like I say, I'm interested to see where this came from and why is it on an F0X? They obviously had this cartridge ready to demo at the show then and maybe the thought rather than making a few different cartridges we'll put it all on one if there's room. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is cool. I mean, if you look at the... I'll put a link in the show notes to the article on Nintendo Life where the tweets are embedded. But actually, yeah, Forest of Illusion have actually tweeted a few pictures kind of collectively showing all these textures that weren't used in the game. And also there's kind of some leftover graphics, some of which look very different to what was in the final game and some have actually pieced together to make it into actual maps. Mm. And there are some people, I mean, there is that one level that's playable now. Looking at the comments on here, some people are actually saying that they, they think in terms of what you can do, it actually looks a bit more free than some of the levels that were eventually yeah, that, in the game. That, that's what I was saying. It, 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 you know, I probably didn't articulate it very well, but it looks more open than what the yeah. final product kind of looked like, which I think some of the, some of Ocarina of Time's charm is that when you're in the towns and the villages, there's a lot going on. You know, for a game that came out in like 1998, they're, they're quite um, living worlds, if you, if you know what I mean. Like they're quite, you know, there's a lot going on and stuff. Whereas what this footage shows is like, just static houses in a row in like a big massive open field which hmm. you ne- you never saw in the final product um link is very much the same like the way he's playing and his graphics on him and stuff but the houses i mean those houses are used in one of the villages but the textures are all wrong on them and stuff it's it's very odd it's very strange but very interesting. You know, last week we were talking, obviously, we've had a few of these come out. We talked about the, the Sonic the wa- Sonic 1 beta mm-hmm. last week. And again, I mean, kind of echoing what I said then, I just think that seeing game development in process, especially from like a massive company like Nintendo, yeah. seeing the process they went to to get a game. And, you know, when, when you get to this era, I mean, Sonic 1 compared to modern games is very simplistic well this is kind of when you get to the open world kind of era and you know games became a lot more complicated then um so i, I do think it's fascinating to kind of see their journey towards a final game yeah no it is really interesting and you know what i always love about it is the fact that people always get it running within like i mean this was only tweeted yesterday and already dumped it and got it running like ravi's already completed it, like, but it i've it, already it imported it into flight simulator <laughs> he's, yeah, yeah he's been playing it on the wii u <laughs> but well, actually, no it is it's crazy y- y- well, you can download it as well. I mean, they've put a link in here if you want to download um, all the assets in the ROM so you can dismantle it, you know, if, you, if you're doing to try and get something else up and running. I love the top comment as well on the, uh, the Nintendo Life article. Um, I can't wait to watch some shrill-voiced nerd pick apart every detail in a 30-minute YouTube video. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm literally excited for this. <laughs> and um, also, get it while you can, folks. You know, it's yeah, Nintendo. Nintendo. Yeah, it's yeah. Nintendo. It's probably gone by the time this episode comes out. Yeah. <laughs> 
downloading as we speak. Ravi will sort you out with a copy. Um, now, this is something we've talked about before, and it's, it's something that actually seems to be a bit more mainstream at the moment. We were talking about this yesterday, actually, Ravi, on, um, on Facebook, as uh, a couple of friends of ours, um, Neil from RMC and uh, Peter from Nostalgia Nerd. They were in the, um, the Times. Yeah, they actually yeah. dedicated uh, half a page talking about kind of how retro gaming and retro computing is becoming a lot more valuable now. And uh, <laughs> there's an article that Joe sent me here. Um, let me get the website up because it's on a, a site called Hype Bay, which um, actually seems to be a girl's fashion and beauty blog website. Not sure why you're reading that, Joe. What you read in your own spare time, it's up to you. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm just all about the handbags, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but they've actually done an article talking about um, how Pokemon trading cards and retro video games are the new way to invest. So again, I mean, it's kind of talking about how, oh, wow, look, suddenly those old video games in your attic are worth a load of money now. And they're giving some of the current prices, you know, um, stuff like Super Mario Brothers made for the NES, um, an original unopened version of it, um, sold for $116,000. And they link through to another website called Raisin that actually kind of gives you a little bit of statistics in there about um, how much the value of them has gone up over recent mm. years. So, I mean, it's had quite a jump again. I mean, we, we've been talking about it ever since uh, lockdown here in the UK started. The fact that things like the um, the Wii has had a huge yeah. spike in value. And, you know, if you go on eBay now, they're selling for way more than they did a couple of years ago, um, whether it's because people have got more time and the board at home or it could just be a timing thing. But then I was um, checking out another website that has popped up recently because when you see stuff like that, you think, maybe you think, oh, I'd love to own one of those original Super Mario Brothers cartridges, but I haven't got a chance of affording it. Well, there is a website now called Otis, and they allow you to buy essentially shares in collectibles. So if you've got like a crew of you, like say us three guys, wanted to put, you know, £20,000 in each, which I'm, you know, with the... With the the amount Ravi's Bitcoin's gone up this week. Yeah, I'm sure Ravi's got that in his Bitcoin wallet. Um, but then we could all collectively buy it, which allows people to maybe have a piece of something that otherwise they wouldn't have chance to own. I'm confused. What are you buying? Are you buying shares in video game companies or are no, you buying shares so in, the, in the trading? I don't... I, f- I believe it is essentially like that episode of Simpsons where they buy Radioactive Man number one. Like we would all put <laughs> yeah. together and we would buy, you know, how like Dan said. Oh, okay. So you're like club it you're clubbing together. Yeah, we're seeing yeah. we're seeing these copies of sealed copies of Mario Brothers go for a million dollars. Um and essentially this website i I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not so much about oh, you're collecting it, so you've got it in your in your uh it's- in your collection it's a case of you all pull together so you've got it as an investment and then in 10 years time you sell it and then you will yeah. keep the profits it's weird because if you have something that's rare and then suddenly someone finds like a thousand versions of it or like you know you've got oh i've got the only one in the world and then no you haven't mate we've got a whole cupboard here you that's know. the interesting thing about rarity it's a completely different subject but people are like oh yeah that game's a rare game or whatever but you know, when it comes to buying, you know, retro video games and stuff like that. But actually, it's it's not rare. Like, 10 million copies of it sold. It's just a sought-after game. But yeah, I guess sought-after, yeah. Well, yeah, but I guess where, word, you know. where it's coming into the rare stuff, inverted commas, is, like Dan said, a sealed copy. The last sealed copy of 
of Mario or the last sealed copy of, you know, it says World of Warcraft here. Sealed copies of that are now selling for $4,000, which I think is ridiculous. And but- also I think it moves with time as well mm. because, like, a lot of the media is is dying. Mm. Like, like, you know, if you're selling Commodore 64 tapes... They're yeah. going to be so old by now that um, I, probably half of them work. I, I don't know, C64 guys, let me know. But um, I'd certainly know with CD-ROMs, I'm selling Amiga CD32 ones, and mm. they're getting like, you know, 20 years old now. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, personally, I think this bubble's going to burst. You know, it says trading cards, you know, Pokemon cards seems to be the massive one this last kind of year. I think it's all going to burst eventually, you know, um, and I don't. I'm not buying anything at the moment. I'm only buying sought after games that I actually want to play for like it's, twenty it's, thirty. It's quid. like you look at this and trading cards. They're really high up. Vintage mm. comics are really high up. But if you think about it, they're in the format that has outlasted every other format, which is paper. Yeah. Which we still have copies of old Bibles. We still have, you know, uh, really, really old copies of paper stuff. Where I don't know if a uh, 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 kind of PCB is going to last that long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. You, like, you, but you, Superman number one is always going to be Superman number one, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think with, with these, I mean, you know, you mentioned then, Joe, you know, the fact that all of these I'm looking at here are sealed copies. Mm. So, I mean, it doesn't really matter if the Super Mario 3 cartridge you've got for the NES actually works inside the box because you're never going to open it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't get that. that either. Yeah, that's, that's, there that's is weird. The, there like, is that as well, but. It's it's interesting. And like I said, I think the bubble's going to burst. People are going to end up being, you know, people are going to end up being like, I'm the guy who owns this million dollar copy of Super Mario Bros. 3. But now it's not worth that, you know. Do you know what I mean? Like these these things happen or some things get found. Or, or disasters happen. Like look at Last Gamer where he had that huge, beautiful arcade collection. I think it was yeah. Last Gamer. And there was that uh, lightning that went on it, all of his electricity and then went through and fried all the machines you know? fried all the machines didn't it but yeah i mean just coming back to what you were saying earlier on people find stuff as well there was um the virtual boy um i can't remember what year it was but a couple of years ago um they found a like a freight container of like a thousand of them which went missing in the 90s and they found the container with like a thousand virtual boys in and they just went onto the market straight away yeah. Well, what what do you guys what do you guys think are the retro gaming uh, investments of the future? I'll tell you what I think, and this is a weird one. I'm probably going to destroy my uh, profit making by telling everyone. But do you remember Microsoft Sidewinder? <laughs> I've got one on the table next to me because uh, yes, mate, you talked to me about it yesterday, <laughs> and I fished it out. Yeah, I don't yeah. Know what that I, is, I'm no. starting to collect Sidewinder stuff because I, I I think really interesting controllers. Joe doesn't know what they are. Um, they were basically before the Xbox. Okay. Um, custom like pads that um, Microsoft did. They also did these big flight sticks, and they look very similar to the Xbox pads. But you know, they're like twelve quid boxed at the moment on um, on eBay. And I guarantee, if LGR did a video about Microsoft Sidewinder, <laughs> then suddenly <laughs> the whole market would yeah. go mental. And, that, and, and that's the other interesting thing about rarity and sought-after stuff. All it takes is a very big YouTuber sometimes to review one of these oddities, and all of a sudden they become big again. You know, I was actually watching a Metal Jesus Rocks video the other day about the Amiga C- CD32, and uh, he had one of his guests on saying how he's for ages been wanting to get one. And it wasn't until the uh, angry video game nerd video came out about them that they shot up in price again 
and it's just like it, it, it's weird isn't it just how like stuff will shoot up and then go back down but like you say Ravi somebody will do a, a video on Sidewinder and all of a sudden they'll be worth 50 quid then again, the Ravi's quid's in now because he, he was selling Amiga City 32 games this week, weren't you? So that might yeah. be why. So if Jason's listening, you should thank him. <laughs> <laughs> now let's talk about something that didn't actually make it to market. Um, and this, I mean, this was something else that um, AVGN covered. I remember he did a video all about Back to the Future games. Mm. And um, they're actually saying in this article here that, you know, most of the games were pretty terrible. I do remember I played the, um, it was Back to the Future 3. For the Mega I think on the Amiga I played it on. Yeah, which might be the same version, but it was an awful game. Um, Yeah. Really difficult. Um, Yeah. But then there was the one that came out a couple of years ago. The, I think it was Telltale did it, you know, the, the, yeah, um, the point the and adventure game. Yeah. Yeah. Talking, yeah. And I love that. I thought they were brilliant. I had that on the PS3 and the PS4. Um, but there was also a game that came out only in Japan. Mm. called Super Back to the Future Part 2. And I don't know if you guys have se- ever seen this before, but it's it's a platformer game that's kind of in that Japanese cutesy style. well Super Nintendo, doesn't it? <laughs> Although it really looks like it's trying so hard to be Sonic. Yeah, it, it is a little bit. Um, and I, you know what? They said that game in this article isn't a very good game either, but that, I actually really want to get my hands on that. That looks really mm. cool. Um but yeah, we've we've not had much much luck with retro um, classic Back to the Future games, have we? Like the only like like you said, the only good one really is the Telltale's. Uh, not is it Telltale's game? Yeah, yeah Telltale's, Telltale's yeah. game one. But yeah, this this is cool. Apparently, we were gonna get a Back to the Future RPG for the SNES. Oh, that around good around nineteen ninety two, nineteen ninety three. Now, this has actually been unearthed by one of our friends. Um, now, I'm not going to say his name, right? I'm, I'm going to get you to say it now, Dan. Well, Frank Cifaldi. There we go, Frank Cifaldi, because I always say <laughs> his surname everything. wrong. I Frank's always, always on it. Yeah, Frank's always on it. He's he's <laughs> unearthed this in a Japanese magazine um, from 1992. Uh, screenshots of a very Zelda, a Link to the Past looking Back to the Future game, um, which just, I don't know, we, we don't know what happened to it or anything like that. Um, but I would have loved that. I would have thought that would have been wicked. Um, you know, from what I understand, you could swap between Marty and Doc, um, you know, and you go around the city and stuff like that, doing side quests, doing quests, doing fetch quests and stuff like that. I don't know why this didn't come out and why we got Super Back to the Future 2 instead. <laughs> I like that it's got the um, town hall in there as well with the clock and stuff. Mm, um, you yeah. Know, it, it looks like, you know, you, you get a lot of games that aren't really that related to the... Um, actual franchise that it's representing but this seems to relate really well yeah and you know we don't know how far in development this was or anything but it, it looks far enough we've got sprites we've yeah you know, like you say we've got artwork and stuff like that we've got i was gonna say we've got logos of course we had a logos to film but yeah <laughs> um once again similar to the zelda story I was, we were just talking about a moment ago uh, i've got more questions for this like i want to know what happened where where's it gone and stuff yeah, I mean, looking at the article, I mean, this was in, and I think we've we've actually mentioned from Mitsu Magazine. Um, yeah, from Mitsu Magazine yeah. before, which was a, it's like a weekly um, gaming magazine. Mm. And you know, reading this article here, it kind of looks like they the same team who made the the platformer um, Super Back to the Future Part Two yeah. were working on this, and they kind of changed the mind midway through development and thought, oh, we'll make it a platformer instead of an RPG. Um, which interestingly, apparently, you know, that only came out in Japan anyway. I, my first thought was whether they were intending to release it in the West, 
and they thought, you know, around that time, early 90s, mm. platformer games were all the... Especially, especially yeah. over here in America, there was the main style of games. Yeah. Whether they thought that would be more successful because RPGs, I mean, obviously massive in Japan, but a lot of them haven't really translated to the Western audiences, particularly not back then. Yeah, no, you're. I, I, I 100% agree with that. I think maybe that was their thought processes. They were hoping this would be a, you know, worldwide release. We'd get it in PAL territories and NTSC, but obviously we didn't and i think you were completely right there rpgs weren't half as big as what they were now you know it was final fantasy 7 that changed that in like 97 and in 91 92 um i guess releasing an rpg would have been a big gamble which wasn't zelda do you know what i mean yeah um so yeah that must have been the reason they changed it but (laughs) coincidentally it only came out in japan anyway so they probably (laughs) would have been probably would have made more money if they just did the rpg in just japan well, I look forward to the beta being uncovered on Twitter in the yep, next Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we chat to Aphrodite, our special guest this week, have you ever like been online and just thought, oh, I missed the old internet? Well, I was checking out um, <laughs> the Facebook page of our good mates at the Home Computer Museum in the Netherlands. Um, we know Bart there. We've met him a bunch of times. Lovely guy. And if you're ever in the area, um, highly worth a visit You know when, when things start to reopen again. Uh, But he actually has come up with a way. So if you sit down at any of the computers that are online at the Home Computer Museum and you type in, for example, you know, Google.com, it will actually fetch the 1998 version of Google. And any other website that you type in, you essentially are accessing the web as it was in 1998. So if you're on Sega's site, it'd be talking about the Saturn. If you're on Apple's website, they'd be pushing, like, you know, the new... um, the new IMAX, I imagine, around that time. So they've actually used a proxy service that he's built in-house that goes via archive.org. Um, and archive.org, they have a thing called the Wayback Machine, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where, you know, probably the biggest <laughs> online archival process that I've ever heard of. They're trying to archive the entire internet. And they've been doing this for like, you know, I think they go back to around 92, 93 with their, uh, their archives. So he's actually picked this year and put it in so everything is served from 1998. But then there is another website that I'm a big fan of called theoldnet.com. And I have this set as my homepage on like my Amiga 4000 and my 486. And that allows the websites from archive.org to be viewed using like, you know, Netscape Navigator from 20 years ago. It works fine on there. But now they've actually made a proxy version of theoldnet.com. So that means you can actually just go into the settings on your browser, on your old machine, set it to be the old net.com, and then next to it in the port, you actually put the year that you want the internet to be um, sent to you from. So if you want to live in like 1998, you set your port as 98. If you want it to be 1996, you can change it to 1996. So then everything that you access on the internet will be served from that year via archive.org. You should just do that to like, all your computers in your house. And then whenever your wife tries to get onto something. <laughs> now there's a good idea. That's just that's a, a really, a really cool idea actually. Cause like navigating Wayback Machine is quite nice, but it's like done on the individual sites. And this kind of old school search engine is wicked. I've just searched for Dan Wood in 1998 and um, it's a housing oh. company. <laughs> I, I hate those guys they always Dan Woodhouse. They, they, were, they were in that early mate <laughs> just don't find any of my embarrassing old usernet posts <laughs> that's it but yeah it goes for all the old search engines as well so like uh, it searches Angel Fire 
GeoCities as well. So I'm trying to see if some of my old sites are on here, actually. Yeah, well, I found a few of mine on there, the links of which I will not be sharing. Um, but I yeah, think I think the fact, the fact that you can do it though, at the proxy level, if you want to turn your whole house into like a time machine, you could probably do that on your router. Yeah, no, that would be funny. That would be so funny. Anybody who kind of comes in or something, like imagine yeah. if you could do it on their phones as well and they connect and they're just like, what's going on? I imagine if you did it on the router then, yeah, if they're accessing your Wi-Fi, that probably would work. Yeah. That's a good idea. I might make a guest network. Just like, you know, a 1996 guest network on my uh, on my router. Well, we There's need to do that on job. the website as well, don't we? Like 1996 mode. Yeah. <laughs> Ravi and I have there. been talking about that for ages because Ravi's made, if you've been on our website recently, it's all sexy and flashy now. But um, we, we were chatting that we should do kind of a GeoCity style version yeah, I, do, I don't know if I could bring myself that. to go back to coding like that again. <laughs> I, would, no I would love that. When anybody asks me about the retro, I'd send them to that site instead. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work on the mobile. It's asking me to install Flash. <laughs> <laughs> Says under construction. When's it going to be finished? Shall I choose frames or no frames? <laughs> oh, God, frames. I remember them. So uh, if you are getting nostalgic here and just talking about all this stuff, um, check out the old net.com. And uh, if you've got an old computer and you want to permanently put it in the past, and access the internet as it was back in the day. Um, check out their new proxy service as well. Right now, before we get into our chat with Aphrodite, just time to give a big mention to um, a couple of things. Um, Amiga Addict magazine. Now, we mentioned this before. This is a little disclaimer, the magazine that you are the editor of, Ravi. Um, and I know you're actually getting ready to drop issue number two. Yeah, so uh, you got issue one through the post, didn't you, Dan? Yeah, read it over Christmas. Really good, actually. Um, yeah, I don't think I've given my thoughts on the podcast of it, but when it landed, cause you sent me like a preview PDF and I had a quick skim through it. And you thought, thought God, this is Ravi's involved. This is going to be crap. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to actually read the paper version because to me, you know, I, I've, I've got Readly and stuff on my phone, which is great if you haven't got the paper copy of it. But particularly for Amiga magazines, I wanted that experience that I had when... Amiga format came through the letterbox or I picked up, you know, Amiga Shopper and stuff like that, which I've got to say, you guys did a sterling job on it. I mean, I was so impressed with the paper quality, the glossy cover in there, full colour, fantastic articles in there. And actually, I read it over Christmas. So, um, yeah, really enjoyed reading it. So I'm already really hyped for issue 10. I know you've got some um, stuff like Steve Hammond from DMA Designs going to be in there. Yeah, so um, issue two, like issue one was very much, uh, we're kind of introducing the magazine, we're introducing people to the scene and uh, that there is an actual Amiga community in 2020. Now this one, we're looking a bit back at the history as well, but we've gone mental on games. So um, we've got DMA Designs being interviewed, which is an interview I've done with Mike Daly and Steve Hammond. Uh, We've got readers' letters, we're doing demo scene interviews we've got a whole thing about the cd32 and nice. cd tv as well and you know the idea with this one is that we're going to try and offer content that's not on the inter- internet so um you know having it printed will give you some unique stuff so um like this interview i've done with mike daly and steve hammond we take a little little different direction there and we talk about you know the rumors about gta being um made on the Amiga and, and where that kind of rooted from and, and try and like work out what happened there. And there was a few court cases and stuff. So really interesting stuff there. And, you know, it's amazing. It's on sale now, Amiga-addict.com. And it's mad that we're doing it monthly. So yeah. uh, uh, we're even working on issue three at the moment, which, which, you know, 
might be a bit relevant to today's guest as well. I look forward to reading it in the bath when it arrives, uh, hopefully next week then. That's, that's the way to consume <laughs> magazines, isn't it? In the bath. Especially yeah. with that glossy cover, it's kind of, you know, I was going to say wipe clean, but that sounded really wrong. It doesn't get worse, <laughs> what I mean. Oh, Amigas. Depends how much into Amiga you are. <laughs> I'm very into the Amiga, as you know. Uh, right, so yeah, definitely check it out if you are a fan. Now, we also have a patron running at the moment, and uh, that is for, you know, the cost of running this podcast. Helps us out with everything that, you know, the, the weekly cost that we have for doing this show week in, week out for you guys. All the hosting and everything, the equipment we need to buy, um, setting up our home studio over the last year you've really helped us out with that as well and of course you do get our uh, extra bonus patrons only podcast and we did the impossible choosing our top five favorite video games of all time i listened back to that the other day and in my head i was like because i couldn't remember what i said and i think my <laughs> list in my head was completely different to what i said on the podcast well so, well uh, next one we're gonna do um forcing each other to play titles uh that we yeah. like which is gonna be really interesting because i'm gonna pick some really Odd ones. <laughs> you know? Oh gosh, and I'm we have to give little reviews, that. do we? Then of each other's favourite games. Yeah, yeah. What what you yeah. liked and what you didn't like about it, and then we can compare and like contrast. Compare notes. <laughs> yeah, I'll be like, "What do you mean you didn't unlock this? <laughs> <laughs> you only got re- that far." <laughs> get ready to get your Atari Jaguar emulators installed, then lads. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, for backing us on Patreon, you'll get a mention on a future episode in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame, like this week. Big shout to. Joe HD, Darren Miller, Andy Ticklebank, Marcus Davis, and from V Blank Entertainment, Brian Provinciano. Thank you so much for your support, guys. It really means a lot to us. And of course, um, we'll be doing another patrons hangout in a couple of weeks' time as well. I think the last one we did was probably our biggest one yet. We, I think, I had about two pages worth of people on there. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I couldn't fit them all on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> I need to get a bigger monitor for the next hangout. <laughs> so uh, we'll be posting a link to that and of course um, you sometimes get the podcast early as well and ad free loads of perks as well if you'd like to back us on Patreon all the details are at theretrohour.com right next we're going to talk about making chart hits with the Amiga uh, behind the scenes on the uh, old school drum and bass and jungle scene as well so much in this week's interview with Aphrodite he is next on the Retro Hour podcast You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And our guest today is actually someone we get a lot of requests for, particularly from um, our listeners who are really into music production. And I remember actually reading an interview with uh, our guest this week in Amiga Format magazine back in the day and being absolutely amazed at the kind of things he was doing on the Amiga back then. So we'll talk about all that and lots more as well. Let's welcome him on Gavin King, better known by the name Aphrodite. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me on. Really appreciate you joining us. And um, we'll obviously get into all that stuff that you were doing back in the day on the Amiga. Because, I mean, you know, I had friends that couldn't believe the music you were making was made on like an Amiga 500 back then. (laughs) Um, But before we do, I mean, kind of rewinding to the start of your journey with computers. I mean, do you remember what initially got you into computers and when you first saw one? Uh, My dad was a professor of computer science. As far back as I can remember, we had computer paper in the house and then i think for my sixth or seventh birthday i was given a a white sinclair handheld thing that i used to program um and then i used to follow him and learn to program at a very early age 
what what was that white Sinclair device and what were you kind of programming what stuff were you making was it just basic uh, copying out of magazines no there weren't really any magazines back then um this is kind of before magazines before everything it was uh like a, a Sinclair handheld device and I, I think it was Land the Lem uh, and uh, or, or some sort of space invader type game um that i programmed in then changed the variables to make it different and it was all done in some sort of basic machine code because yeah, i remember doing stuff like that and when you when you figured out how you could modify a game and kind of manipulate you know the code in the game that, that was really satisfying i think you, know, you felt like a bit of a hacker doing that as a kid didn't you yeah that's right it was a handheld calculator i've no idea where it is now I can't even, I've just Googled it. I can't even see one. Probably go for a fortune on eBay now. Probably would. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, musically, I mean, you, you play piano and violin. I mean, having a formal training to read music, I mean, do you think that was a, a bonus then when you went on to making computer music? Uh, it was in that I knew how, I, I knew how phrasing worked on a new cadences, how things should end, um, I knew about all the kind of like laws of making music in that you group it in fours and eights and twos and, and, and all those kind of things. But what I didn't, uh, you know, but I think the most important thing, one of the most important things that came through from the violin playing was the fact I have a perfect pitch. It's a very weird thing that my mum was a pianist. And if I tell you that I do not understand how a pianist manages to read two staves at once. It's a mystery to me how mm. they, they look at a sheet of music and at the same time they can read the left hand and the right hand and they play the music, yeah? Um, a piano player will ask me how I find the top E and I tell them that I think about the note in my head and my hands just go to the note and it plays it. And that's how violinists make, uh, you know, that's how we find the notes. We think about it in our mind and our hands just do it. And a pianist doesn't understand that. So where that comes in useful with the DJing is that I look at a record and I instinctively know which one goes with what. And I instinctively, after hearing a record, I know if it's going to mix in with other things and I can hear when things are blending and in tune and the, when the frequencies are hitting in the kind of uh, making music, you know. So you can't have a snare sound that's one quarter of a tone out playing with the bass sound because it will sound odd if you have to make it work. So the snare has to hit, has to hit a fifth higher than the bass sound and all these things uh, the, the the kick and snare always have to be in sync with each other for it to sound good and it's it's very similar to kind of programming as well actually when you're reading music and you're doing sight reading or you're doing it kind of live because uh, you you know you you visualize the results in your head and uh, I guess that was very similar to making music on a computer as well back then yeah be, well um, I mean doing it on med because I, I used med originally um, on, on the Amiga was you have something in your mind which is uh, you know, like, a, like a drum roll or a drum pattern. I know that's going to be in a group of 16 and, or, or 12 uh, and where the notes will hit. 
So that's very easy for me to just program into med because you, you visualize it in, in, in your mind. Most musicians have the melody in their head and then they have to play it on a keyboard first and then it goes into the MIDI recorder. Uh, with me, I'll be honest, I still don't have a keyboard set up. I never use the keyboard. I have the melody in my mind and I just program it straight in. Well, going back a bit, you know, before that, your, your dad is actually a university professor. I mean, did he have access to university systems and use any computers at his work? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I first programmed a North Star Horizon terminal. I can't remember what, I think it was Pascal or maybe C was the program, was the language that I learned. And it was a PDB 1134. This thing was the size of, uh, it was the size of a kitchen. It was huge, this this computer. And there was a guy, it was all done in Unix. Um, and there was one guy that used to just love the computer. He knew Kevin, this, this guy's name was. And he was there 24 hours a day working for the University of London. So were they like kind of terminals that were then hooked up to the main system? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and then about maybe many years later, I remember the internet starting when I was at university communicating with that with other people in different universities around the world and, and like what age were you when you were using that because they're pretty expensive pieces of kit um <laughs> and you must have oh, yeah. been like really really young using that um, oh yeah i mean uh well i was just i was going there with my dad he, he was he ran the department and so i could just go along with him on a friday night my parents got divorced so i would spend the weekend with my dad and i would just go in there with him on a Friday night and, and, and use, use his computers. I think I was 10 at the time. So you got an Apple II clone. Um, Ravi's wrote down it was an ITT 2020, which I must admit I've never heard yeah. of that clone system. What, what's kind of the background to that then? And how did you get that? Uh, it, it, it wasn't mine. It was the school's. The school had one computer and that was it. And there were nerds like me who queued up after school uh, from four o'clock onwards to program on it. And this was all in basic. Now, and what year was this around? Because I know, like, educationally, there wasn't that many apples in, in the UK. Um, so this must have been kind of a, a unique thing, having, well, at least a clone there. 77, 78. And uh, were so, you using CPM on there as well? Uh, and- no, no, no. With an IT2 2020, you could... Um, the operating system allowed you to have a basic program in all the time and, and you could kind of use that. I, I bought my own floppy disk that had my own program. So I would take my disk into school and then load, load up my program, change it around and then save it and then take a printout and then stare at the printout until the following day where I, hopefully I'll try and get 10 minutes of time to change the program. And could you actually look at that at home then and kind of figure out if things were going wrong and how they're going to work without having access to the machine? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, all, all programming really is done away from the computer. Yeah. Um, it's only the kind of input of it and the running of it, which is done on the, on, on the terminal. Um, yeah, I mean, I've always been like that. I mean, I remember when I was doing my project at, at university, still doing a printout and the printout just got longer and longer and longer. I think the, 
the longest program I, I did. I thought, I thought it was ridiculous. 70 feet long, I think this print yeah. that was. Yeah. So my mum was, she was a mainframe programmer in the 70s. Oh, wow. And okay. Yeah. And when she tried to, you know, I, I've always been dreadful at programming, but when, you know, she tried to teach me as a kid, she'd always say, you know, do it on, on a notepad first. And the last thing you should do is input it into the computer after you worked it out on paper. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. I, I, I still do that now. <laughs> Well, obviously, then we had, you know, the microcomputer revolution was kind of in full swing when we got into the early 80s. And you upgraded to a Commodore 64. And obviously, in terms of machines that could make music, I mean, the 64, the SID chip in that, just a legendary machine. So did you kind of discover the Commodore 64 music after you had it? Or was that a reason that you wanted that machine? No, Commodore 64, for me, was just all about gaming. Uh, Before that, it was a VIC-20 I didn't have the VIC-20. My friend had the VIC-20, and I think there was a Sinclair. There was a Spectrum around at the time as well. But uh, the one that I honed in on and wanted was the, was the C64. I just thought it was the best one. Um, most people at, at the time thought it was the best one. I mean, Com- Commodore were leading the pack at the time. Well, you wanted to kind of follow in your father's footsteps, so you went um, to university for computer science. Yeah, um, what, what was your kind of career plan and path back then? Um, well, I didn't really have one. You know, it was just the done thing was go to university and at the end of that see what was going on. But I was class of 1990 and that was a big recession when I finished university, there was a recession. Um, I did get an interview and an offer to leave London and go to Basingstoke to work for this little company that I said no to called Microsoft. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I know, right? And then uh, I became an insurance salesman and in my spare time um, decided – to make music on the Amiga, um, literally to bump up my mixtapes. I mean, tell us about that job offer at Microsoft then. What, what was the offer and um, why did you turn it down? I didn't want to leave London. I didn't want to go to Basingstoke. Uh, it was it, working in a small team, in a small office. I think there was about kind of 10 people in this team. And, and, and I was going to be just kind of uh, just programming and helping with everything. So you see me and Dan are two. Uh, too uh, too young to kind of remember the full rave revolution. Uh, what was it like when it started kicking off? Because you were at uni at the time, weren't you? It must have been mental. I was right thick in the middle of it. I mean, I, um, uh, you know, when it kicked off, it was uh, end of 87, 88. And then in 88 was when, early 88 was when I got involved and started going to the acid house parties in London. When I went back to university, there was nothing going on at all. Um, so, but I had these records, and then I met this other guy called Adam who knew what acid house was, and we kind of like formed a relationship. He seemed to have a load of records that I didn't have. I had a load of records he didn't have, and you know, together we had about four or five inches worth of records which wasn't much but it was enough to put on our first uh our first night acid acid party night uh that we called aphrodite and the raves when they started they started in london didn't they and then they kind of spread out to these huge huge outdoor events did you get to go to any of those big massive illegal raves 
yes. Yeah, I went to quite a few of them. I, I do remember one. I can't remember what it was called, but I do remember one in 1990 where there was a huge blockade um, by the police at the gates. And then I remember being at the very front of this uh, uh, of, of the ravers, and then we heard the bass drum just going boom, boom, boom in the distance. Um, and, you know, all of us, we were so crazed to go to the party. We said, we've got to get through, break down the gates, push the police aside. And we did. We broke down the gate, pushed the police aside and ran down the hill, several hundred of us, to the party. <laughs> <laughs> Quite bonkers when you think about it now. But at the time, it was like that was all we wanted to do. And it, and it was all kind of before social media as well, wasn't it? So it was like uh, ringing a, a phone box. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, just getting the address and then waiting at those service yeah. stations as well. They were the big ones, but to be honest with you, most of the most of the best nights uh, were still going on in club scenes. You had uh, Land of Oz and Spectrum, and that was all going on in Heaven Nightclub in in in, in London. And that was at a time where the rave scene wasn't big enough to fill the whole club, so it only filled the ground floor, and the the top floor was still kind of. Um, a, a bunch of like uh, weird gay come goth come God knows what. As ravers, we didn't go up there. And like uh, guys like Danny Rampling as well was setting up um, kind of club nights as well. And um, what, what what were the kind of setups that you had? Like uh, was it just a real simple two decks and a mixer kind of setup, or did you have any effects over the top or anything? Just two decks and a mixer. Really, Pro- uh, proper old school stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I've got two decks in a mixer over there. <laughs> yeah, I've had my Technics twelve tens for about twenty years, and I think they've been uh, taken to more clubs and bars and dropped downstairs, but you know, still work flawlessly. Yeah, that's where that's where I draw the line because my first ones were kind of like travelling everywhere. These ones I have now, I wouldn't take them anywhere. <laughs> Look after them these days. Yeah, yeah. And, and was that quite an investment, like getting the DJ equipment and stuff, and like you know all the all the lasers and the light shows? Like, didn't uh, really need to get all of it. I mean, normally the profits of the party, you were man- you were managed to get more records and more maybe uh, some equipment like a smoke generator or something like that. But most of the time, the system you would use the club system. So so I put I rented clubs out. I wasn't doing things in, you know, those big tents in fields. Well, let's get on to your work on the Amiga, which is, you know, I mentioned before, I I remember reading about what you were doing in Amiga format when I was a kid and being blown away. I mean, when did you first hear that Amiga sound then and what about it appealed to you? Well, it was at university. It was in, it was in, uh, I think, end of of 89 or beginning of 90. And um, I walked into a friend of mine's, room on campus uh just about some about some work or something like that or 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 a lecture and he and he had one and i said oh let's have a look and then he at some point he played a piece of music that i recognized it was a breakbeat it just sounded like a normal piece of music and uh and i said what is that what is that you've got to show me how to do it and uh as soon as i could i saved up a few months, bought the Amiga, and then uh, sussed out how to do it. And then at the end of that year, I instigated four of us who all had Amigas 
to make a to make a record, and uh, we stayed behind after after one of the terms, and um, we spent a week in a cellar making this record. I called it Cellar Four because there were four of us in a cellar. Needless to say, it totally bombed. Didn't do very well at all. And I remember about 10, 10 years ago, moving house. I threw about a hundred of them in the, into a skip. I did keep some back. Unfortunately, I did because uh, they sell for quite a lot of money now on on Discogs. <laughs> and like, uh, were you aware of stuff like the demo scene and the uh, crack scene? And because I I remember a lot of the demo tunes had uh, early like breakbeats in them and stuff. Uh yes, I did, but. Most of what was going on, what I heard from the Amiga scene, I thought was pretty poor. It, it wasn't up to up to up to scratch. It wasn't quality enough. But what I thought was that with a bit of time, patience, and work, you could get it sounding good. So you could, you know, if you operated on the sounds and then clean them up with the mixer, etc. Making sure there's no, uh, there's no silence, no hiss. You have to make, do, do so much operations on the samples. If you can get that sounding good, then what you play will be relatively clear. And I think you're right there because I mean I, I was mentioning this in the first part of our show today that you know when I was at school. We had like a group of us that were into video games and a few of the older kids who were like, you know, they were going to the raves and everything. And they they kind of looked down on us for being a bit nerdy and kiddy. And then I remember saying to one of them, you know, the music you listen to, a lot of that's made on the Amiga. And he's like, get it, get out of here. No, it's not. You're lying. And he didn't believe that it could make music like, you know, you guys were making. I mean, what was kind of the, the mastering process that you used? Because it did sound so much better than what you heard on games. <laughs> uh, well, for a start, you have to have two computers working together because you've only got two channels coming out the back of the computer and out of each of those channels, you can mix two things in. So you, you can only play four things at the same time. So the two things that are playing at the same time, you generally want to be that same part of the music. For example, if you've got a breakbeat and a hi-hat you can put them on one channel. If you've got a kick drum, you can probably put that with the snare. The bass, because it's low and, in, and, and gritty, keep that on its own. Then suddenly what you have to realise is you haven't got enough channels on one computer to make a record. You need two or even three. That's why we had four of them linked up um, down in, in the cellar. And we figured out when we were in that cellar that the best way of keeping them in time was with a click track. You could, you could um, once you press play, you could speed up and slow down. But if you had a click, like a metronome going on at the same time, once it was in sync and flanging, you knew that the, the two Amigas were in sync. Then the track could be played. And were, were they like literally Amiga 500s? And was it just a case of listening to the click track and then hitting spacebar at the uh, right time? Yeah. I mean, for example, um, at the beginning of your track, I have four blocks of clicks and then one block of silence. The other Amiga will have three blocks of clicks and one block of silence. So he gets his mouse ready at the end of my first block 
and then plays his one and then will speed up and slow down to get the click in um, in sync so that, it, you know, so it's flanging really tightly through the speakers. Um, we did that with actually four computers, but because there was too many things playing at the same time, it got a bit messy. It always sounded better the less tracks you had playing um, because less is more with music production. Yeah, and I think there might be a tendency for a lot of, especially new producers, to just kind of throw everything in there and yeah. try and overcomplicate things. Yeah, absolutely. Since I've gone from Amiga to Logic, I'm guilty of the same thing myself. Um, well, talk us through a bit about that kind of um, Amiga setup that you had then. You had the four Amiga 500s then. I mean, did you have samplers? What what kind of things were you running these through? No, no, no. For, for, the, for the very first one in 1990, it was just four Amigas. That was it. We did have a guitar on one of them, um, but when we went to two Amigas, say the first the first single, Some Justice, that was literally just two Amigas. And how we mixed that down was it went into a standard Newmark mixer, DJ mixer, with four channels. We got the balance as best we could and the EQ as best we could from the samples and from the Amiga, and then it went into the DJ mixer there was a little bit of oil exciter, and then it went straight onto the onto the deck. Wow! So, so it was like directly mastering off kind of live playing. Yes. And uh, what what tracker software were you using? Were you a Pro Tracker or an Octomed? Uh, uh, Octomed. Um, we always used Octomed. I think we used Octomed three. Two was around for a little bit, but they changed to three. Three was pretty good. I think we used that for a while. And then four was the best one. Five I didn't enjoy. Six I didn't enjoy. So I stayed with four, I think. And did that have any MIDI options as well? Did you have any MIDI controllers in there? Or, or... Yeah, yeah, you had full MIDI capabilities. Um, so I used to run uh, later on in, in, in the 90s, in the mid-90s, for about 95, I think, I bought my Akai um, S3000i. And then uh, use that. I also there was other things. I I got another couple of modules as well, um, but I, I didn't use them very much. I I, I, f- I favoured the sampling nature of the of the S three thousand. What kind of made that Amiga sound so unique, especially in regards to the bass? If you look at the waveform of an Amiga bass, it is flat and big. And it does not change. There is no ADSR. There is no up and down in volume at all. It is just big and solid and constant. And when you're cutting that onto a piece of vinyl, you basically cut the bass at its maximum speed. uh, Sorry, at its maximum volume. If you have a volume that comes out of a synthesizer, a bass that comes out of a synthesizer, there's always some sort of ADSR. So even with a long bass, you'll have this kind of hit at the front. So the volume of the waveform goes large at the beginning. Now, when you're cutting bass to vinyl, you can only cut to a maximum volume. So what it means is that your Amiga bass will be louder and bigger once it goes to vinyl. Um, whereas your keyboard bass, whatever keyboard it is, will never be as big and loud sounding as the one that comes straight out of the Amiga. 
And in those raves, it was a kind of competition to get uh, the the big bass lines and uh, yeah. you know get the crowd going. So that 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 yeah. was uh, pretty much ideal for that. It was. I mean, uh, to have your to have your vinyl as a loud pressing as possible. I mean, it did get a bit silly in the end. And you know, I know the jump up crew, the jump up jungle crew, or jump up drum and bass crew still to this day have this obsession with loudness. Um, but I, it's not so relevant anymore because uh, you can, with gain and volume, you can always change things. Well, how did um, you and Mickey Finn get together and uh, where, where did Some Justice come from? Uh, I made two tracks to bump up my mixtape and I thought these sounded pretty good. I made two of them in, two of them in one night and one of them was the early early mix of some justice um it had the horn the fatback horn sampled at the, at the beginning and the bass line with the with the kind of up and down and the wobbleness of the bass line and i played them in a record shop to ray keith of all people and he was in the record shop and he said yeah this sounds great um also in the record shop was mickey and he said oh this this does and this sounds great so he came round and then he you know he was the an, an ideas man he said like how about this break um and then i pulled out one of my favorite records which was uh cc rogers someday where there's this big vocal uh, on the other side he said sample it he said we can't sample that that that's cc rogers you know you you, you can't and, and we did it worked and then we were able to clear the sample with cc rogers and 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 the track went out and it it went big it went massive in the uk that must have been crazy suddenly being like you know not not that you were typical pop stars but having a track in the charts technically made you a pop star uh yeah i mean it was great um the uh we we, we did a second one and then we did more um and then at the time the music was changing so fast that the music from 1991 was completely different to 2, 92, 93, and then 94, Jungle came along. Um, before that, pretty much everyone was playing the same. You know, if you looked at all the rave DJs in 1990, pretty much everyone was playing the same kind of stuff. It was only by 92, 93 where you had these people splitting into house, trance, jungle, uh, breakbeat, and, and all different variants. Did you ever end up taking uh, Amigas into nightclubs, or was it was it purely just for the kind of mastering? You wouldn't do any uh, live live playing. No, we we did think about it, but there were too many things that could have gone wrong, so it just it just wasn't just wasn't on our agenda in the end. You know, he had that top forty hit with some justice. I mean, I was quite—I always remember seeing when you'd see like DJs and dance music acts on top of the pops, and you'd always have like a guy in the background, you know, pretending to mix on the Technics twelve tens, that kind of thing. Yes. I mean, did, did you ever get asked to do any of that kind of thing? I did. I was asked to go on top of the pops when with the Jungle Brothers remix that we did. Um, I think that I can't remember what number it got to, number twenty-six maybe. Um, but I wasn't able to make it. Um, for whatever reason at the time, uh, life got pretty busy in in the in the late nineties for me. I think I was off DJing somewhere, but they did do it, and they just I don't know who they probably just paid someone to just sit there and mine with a keyboard. I think. Oh, wicked! Because that 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 got quite big as well. I remember it was used in a movie actually. 
yeah, everything was done was done on the Amiga. Um, however, the True Blue remix was the sounds came out of the Akai, but I used Med for for the uh, for the notations. So, um, as far as the actual sounds coming out of the Amiga, nineteen ninety five, I think APH seventeen and eighteen. So about nineteen ninety five was when I kind of transferred everything to um, Akai and, and, and got it sounding right coming out of the Akai, whereas I, there was a period of time, uh, only a few months, where the sounds would come out of the Akai and the bass and beats would come out of the Amiga. Well, you did feature in that um, Amiga format issue that I mentioned before in 1992, and you're actually the cover stars, um, the cover lead on on that issue. Uh, How did did that come about then? Did they kind of approach you, and how did the Amiga community kind of embrace you then? I can't remember how there was a guy called, was it Tony Horgan? Yes, we've had him on the podcast, actually. I think it was him. I, I, Hmm. I remember getting in touch with him. I think it was to do with med because there was a few changes and things I wanted done with med. So I ended up talking to the med guys. Is it Tin J Hinneman? Yeah, I, I, I could never say his name either, but I know I know who you mean. Yeah. Finland, didn't he? Oh, I've got his name on uh I've actually got the Optimed manual here. It's like a Tinja yeah, I could never say <laughs> I can't remember. But um yeah, I mean, I, I remember getting in touch with him and then asking him if he could make it do this, that and the other because he was very techy uh, rather than musical. Which other DJs and producers were using the Amiga at the time? I remember DJ Zinc was one, um, Paradox. Did you, did you guys meet up at all and chat about um, using did, the Amiga and know, share tips? Yeah, I didn't know Zinc was a – I thought he was one of the Atari crew. Um, most people were using Ataris um, and Cubase. Um, I know that Foul Play, their music sounded like it was Amigas. And then I got to know Busy B at some point in the 94, 95, something like that. And I, I do remember him phoning me up. And somewhere I've got this recording of him leaving a message saying, the tracks you are coming out with are blowing my mind. <laughs> Which I, just, I always remember. Because uh, I, got, I really got heavy into chopping up and messing around with breakbeats. And uh, there was one particular record I did um, called Booyah, Beat Booyah. And, and I'm pretty sure that I did as much as is humanly possible to the amen break as anyone could ever do. Was, was there much of a rivalry as well between the uh, Amiga producers and the Atari guys? Uh, no, but if you analyse one of the tracks, you could tell it was made by an Amiga. But I think uh, no, there was just uh, there was just a common ground. It didn't to me. It didn't really matter how your music was made. It was more how it sounded at the end. Um, it was kind of irrelevant how it was made because, you know, I was living proof that you could make a record, a, a good sounding record for a thousand pounds worth of equipment um, mm. as you can a good sounding record with a half a million pound studio. And I think you're right because that era did kind of change that 
quite a lot. Didn't actually remember. I remember the song White Town, Your Woman, that was like a UK number one. And I remember, yeah. you know, them doing like news reports on how it was like some teenage kid in his bedroom using an Atari ST. And the fact that then it was possible to compete in the charts with these people who, who were using million pound studios. Yeah, that's right. Um, because at the, at the end of the day, all you're doing is creating a waveform. And if you can work out a way of doing that waveform cheaper, then do it. And uh, you also released an Urban Shakedown sample pack, which is uh, quite sought after now. Everybody's like, oh, get that Urban Shakedown sample pack. What's the story behind that? Um, well, people, you know, I don't think people generally, one of the common mistakes I used to hear, and I heard it a lot in people's productions, uh, was they would play the sample and then try and clean it up as it was coming through the mixing desk. But the samples, to start with, have to be supremely clean. That You know, you have to operate on the samples before it even comes, you know, come, come, comes out of the sequence. Um, and I think people always underestimate the amount of work that can go in just to getting a hi-hat to sound good before it even goes in the sequencer. And I had a lot of sounds and things um, that we were using, and I can't remember who it was. I think someone suggested the sample. It might might have even been Tony Horgan himself um, suggesting it. Uh, and then it went out on the, I think it went out on a meek format. And uh, it, it was really good, actually, because, you know, you had those old sample packs, like STO1, STO2, yeah. and I think it went up to 99. But uh, to have a different <laughs> set with some break beats and stuff was really useful. There was a lot of classic breaks beat, beats that people were using. Um, but they, a lot of them, like what I know is the helicopter beat, there was a kind of glitch on the original and everyone seemed to sample the original and there was this glitch in it forevermore. And this used to wind the hell out of me. And, you know, I could, I could, it would do my brain in every time I heard it. And, <laughs> and so I made my own version of that track and in all that breakbeat. But in order to do that, it's not just a case of, breaking it down into kick, snare, and hi-hat. For example, the snare and the shaker sound, for example, I might have, there might be a bit of vocal or a bit of glitch on the original, so I have to take that out and replace it with some of the noise from somewhere else in that breakbeat in it. And it might, so the snare that I finally am left with might not actually be anything related to the snare at all. I might have made some reverb, added the reverb, reversed it for a little bit, then mixed it in slightly, and then put a small volume descent in it, and then made the end, make sure that always starts, make sure the sample always starts and ends with a zero. Uh, you know, all these little things that go in to make the sound. Um, it might not be a sound that's possible to sample. In fact, a lot of the things that I, I, I do even now, they're, they're not actual 
possible to sample. They're kind of sounds that all, I like that sound there. And then when you sample it, it's got a bit of vocal on, it's got a bit of this, that, and the other. And then you find the bit that you need to replace it from somewhere else. And so you end up kind of creating a sound that didn't exist in the first place. Yeah, something totally new from like a just just from a reference. Yes, yeah, uh, and then and then you put it through some of the mad effects that were on uh, were, were within the Amiga. Uh, I remember there was this crazy echo, and you could echo things very tightly to make a note, and it made this sound a flat a flange effect. And I, I used that quite a few times. That was great because you you can't do that on the Atari or. or or that effect anywhere else. And I love the the way you could draw your bass sound as well. And that was great. You know, the stuff that you were doing back then, you know, as a kid in my bedroom with a copy of Pro Tracker, <laughs> trying to, you know, just make some music on the Amiga, and I was terrible at it. You know, it, it still blows my mind, the effects and the things that you came out with, the, the quality. Uh, have you still got an Amiga set up today then with any of like your old mods on floppy disk or your sample packs or anything? <laughs> Yes, I have the Amiga set up right next to me. Um, I have my box of discs, or well, one of them, right behind me. And um, I, I re-released uh, a record recently that was 100% done on the Amiga. Um, the sounds that came out of the Amiga, it was a track called A-Zone, Calling the People. Um, and I did it in 1994, and it became a, a big jungle tune. Um, and I've just... I just got all the sounds. I found the sounds. I had to ring Busy B up, actually, for some Amiga help because he's much more techie than me um, about um, – oh, I can't remember what it was to do with some sort of glitch on one of the discs, maybe. I can't, I can't rightly remember. But I, 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 I got it, and then I played it into the Apple that I'm using now into Logic – and then once I had everything in Logic, I then mixed it down again to get it sounding kind of crisp and more nail-like. Um, but you, you, you do that, and it still sounds like the original. And then people who listen to it go, oh, it sounds awesome. It sounds just like the original. It sounds brilliant. They don't actually realize that you've spent a lot of time cleaning it up because they're so used to modern modern production techniques, all it does, it just sounds crisp, and it just sounds crisp, but they actually think the original sounded crisp, and it really wasn't at all. <laughs> <laughs> the original was proper messy. You know what, though? If you listen to a lot of, like, um, young producers now who kind of, you know, got like, the synthwave genre and all that stuff is, is becoming big now, and a lot of people are kind of aiming to try and recapture that, you know, the early 90s kind of chip tune and, like, the Amiga and the Commodore 64, mm. that kind of sound. But I think you can always tell when it's real hardware. Uh, possibly, yes, possibly. Uh, I, think, I think a lot of it comes down to how it's, how it's mixed down in the end, because... My early tracks had a different, had a, a certain flavour to them, because I was using an analog mixing desk. It was just a Spirit, uh, a very cheap one, um, but I could redline things and I could put analog distortion in there and, and do all sorts of things in that, and that had its own sound. I then went to a Mackie Thirty Two, and that again had its own sound, but you couldn't distort things because that was a digital mixer. Um, and now you have the other thing, the other thing again, which is 
everything is inside the computer and you're mixing it down inside the computer. And in some ways, the computer blends everything together a bit too much. So it um, it sounds a little overproduced, whereas, you know, just a, just a snare, kick drum and a hi-hat can sound amazing um, if it comes out of an old mixing desk. And I think there's been a movement towards that recently. I know, like, Ravi was telling me the Chemical Brothers, their last album, that, you know, they went back to using individual hardware devices rather than doing it all on a, on a computer. Yeah, 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 yeah. You actually have to work harder on your sounds to, to get to get them sounding full um, if, you're, if you're working within Logic. Um, I, I, it's, difficult to, it's difficult to know to put your finger on why. <laughs> so I know obviously the, the music industry has been really a different place over the last year, um, obviously with venues not being open and not being able to perform. I mean, how's kind of life for you at the moment then? What are you up to these days and what's kind of your plan for 2021? Um, well, you know, I, I became a DJ for many, many years and then now I've become this legendary DJ. Uh, I think once you reach a certain age, you become legend. Uh, <laughs> that's quite cool because I, I still can DJ everywhere. But during the pandemic, um, I haven't really been doing any of that at all. So I have been doing bits and pieces with releases. I've done a few tunes, uh, not as many as I, as, as I should have done. I'm not as uh, prolific as I was back in the day because um, I like to sleep these days. Well, Gavin, it's been wonderful catching up with you. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your stories and uh, that little insight into your time using the Amiga. I think it's amazing you've got an Amiga set up again and um, yeah. hopefully we can hear more stuff that you've made on that platform at some point in the future. <laughs> well, you can see the Amiga set up. I can take a picture of it, but there was uh, a doc BBC documentary I was in recently where they came to the studio and filmed me in here. And there's a clip of that somewhere. Oh, fantastic. Well, if I track that down on YouTube or something, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, yeah, someone's put it on there. Urban Shack Gan Aphrodite with his Amiga. Great. All right, well, I'll link that up. Everyone can check that out as well. So, uh, <laughs> fantastic. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on and being our guest this week. Really enjoyed talking to you. No problem. Thank you. Thank you.